Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwartztrauber. On today's show, it's another day, and another day means there's some Airbnb problem somewhere in the world. Uh, today, we're going to focus on Tennessee and Colorado. Uh, my resident sharing economy scholar slash commentator slash likes to be in the media, Jared Meyer, research fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability. Jared, thank you for making a media appearance. I know you hate doing these. Thanks, Evan. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. You didn't come up with some clever retort. We should probably practice our banter next time so that it seems super natural and organic. Um, but anyway, let's talk about Nashville. Uh, Nashville and Airbnb have kind of been at it uh, for the past couple of years. Uh, can you talk about specifically the 2015 ordinance that you know resulted in the lawsuit that we're going to get to after you explain this law? <laughs> so Nashville's city council bowed to pressure from the hotel industry and passed pretty restrictive uh, Uh, regulations against short-term rentals. One of the main things it did was it capped neighborhoods at 3% uh, of houses being able to get a short-term rental permit for a non-owner-occupied house. What this means is like a second home. And just think in Nashville, a city known for its music industry, a lot of people have second homes there or maybe are moving for jobs and then coming back. So this was something that placed really an arbitrary cap on neighborhoods that don't have many hotels like East Nashville and has led to a lot of problems going on there. And what was the intent behind? I mean, I, of course, the hotel industry, we know that they have business reasons to try to use government against their competitor. And I don't want to get in the business of questioning the motives of legislators I know nothing about. So is there a non-hotel related justification for this law that the legislators said uh, was their motivation? Yeah, another thing they were talking about was a lot of neighbors don't want party houses. Or I mean, Nashville's now the bachelorette party capital of the world, surpassing Vegas. Yeah, when I went to your bachelor party there, Jared, I'm pretty sure you were the only bachelor party in Nashville, whereas every other one was a bachelorette party. Yeah, so apparently some people don't want a bunch of 20-year-old girls staying at the house next to them. So they were pushing this as a way to control noise violations or parking ordinances. They actually said that people, again, illegally parked cars, excessive parties. But my whole point on this is we already have nuisance laws. And even uh, Nashville's regulations that they have, uh, there's other ways to address these problems rather than saying, you know what, we can't have home sharing. Like, I'm I'm positive. There are annoying Airbnb guests. They, they've got to be out there. But there's also annoying neighbors. So we need these rules to apply to everyone if we care about public uh, safety or just nuisance reduction. Well, the platform itself has a reputation management function. So you would think that after disrupting neighborhoods and destroying property X number of times that you as a user of Airbnb as a guest would get a bad rating and the host would get enough pressure from his community. But I mean, let's be real. We always say in the context of Airbnb, you know, defenders of the sharing economy say, well, just enforce the existing laws. But have we ever actually seen a city respond to Airbnb and up their game on nuisance and actually do something? Because otherwise it kind of sounds like a BS talking point from our side when we just say, oh, we'll just enforce the existing law. Well, I think that's something you can do, but instead you're seeing cities like New York, for example, where a lot of apartments have in their leases that you can't do a short-term rental. You can't use the apartment when you're renting it out for another rental. Uh, But what a lot of people living in buildings want 
the government to do is come in and enforce this contract rather than saying, you know what, you need to go to the landlord themselves if you're annoyed with that, or landlords need to take care of this problem. This is a problem that's a, there were short-term rentals before Airbnb. It's just made it easier now, and that's why we're getting the pushback. But there are other ways to enforce this rather than saying we need a 3% cap, and that's all we're going to allow here. So there was that was one aspect of the ordinance. There's also this $1 million of... Uh, liability insurance for renters and it didn't allow homeowners to use signs to advertise their homes. Is this a, I I don't know what a million dollars in liability translates to in the actual payments that an owner makes. Was, is this a significant burden on an Airbnb host? You could argue that's a significant burden, but this is something that we've seen cities pick different levels, kind of with ride sharing as well, where the companies had already adopted some voluntary insurance protections, and now cities just want to codify them. And what's going on here with the signage, actually, when this uh, ordinance was challenged in court by the Free Market Beacon Center of Tennessee, they found that saying that you can't put a sign that says, you know, oh, Jared's Airbnb, uh, that's unconstitutional, saying that you can't do that. Why? Um, Because of freedom of speech? Yes, that was the argument. Because you're you're putting a sign on your own property. So we've actually seen, like, that's kind of funny, because we've talked about Airbnb on the show a million times, about people trying to ban the online advertising of short-term rentals as a way of attacking the platform. Uh, This is the first time I've seen someone try to ban putting a physical sign on your property that says, this is an Airbnb. If they did something similar for Uber, we would all think that's ridiculous. It actually helps people to know. Yeah, they require it on a lot of regulations. Yeah, and if, hey, look, if you're someone who's worried about noise and you're looking at property in your neighborhood and you see Airbnb stickers everywhere, hey, maybe that actually helps you make a better decision about whether to buy property there. Now, a lot of times, Airbnb's on the defensive, right? It's like, why are, how, just explain to me how you're not destroying my city, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've talked about some of the problems, right? That the potential pitfalls, noise, a bunch of suitcases. What about the benefits? I mean, <laughs> a lot of times we don't talk about the benefits. Why should a city like Nashville embrace Airbnb? Does it do anything for Nashville? Well, the first thing I'd like to point out is the city inexplicably is giving millions of dollars. They don't even know how much they've given to hotels to incentivize building more hotels. Why? Why are they trying to build more hotels? Well, the reason is Nashville has the most expensive hotel prices in the entire country. I was just staying down there and it was over $300 to just stay in a normal room, not even a fancy, just a courtyard. It's $300. That's More a, than New York, San uh, Francisco. Yeah, a similar hotel. I, I stay in those in New York as well. They're about 180 So it's almost twice as much to stay in downtown Nashville as it is to stay in Manhattan. Is that because of all the bachelorette parties or is it because <laughs> people love country music? I mean, I'm, I'm, I like Nashville. I've been there twice. I'm a little baffled that it outprices New York and San Francisco. I think the city's grown so much and it just hasn't allowed the number of hotels to build up in the past. So Wait, now are you suggesting that supply up. and demand has an effect <laughs> on prices? Get out of here. (laughs) But what's crazy is that in the face of this problem, they have something that could solve it, Airbnbs. And there's not much housing in downtown Nashville, where Airbnb was bumping into this 3% cap, as I said, it was in East Nashville or South Nashville, some of the more residential neighborhoods where they don't have any hotels. So I just think this is a problem that already solved itself. Why is Nashville giving, they can't even keep track of how many millions of dollars to build more hotels when Airbnb came in and helped them out? with their problem. So it's solving the problem of scarcity in the short-term rental market, meaning there aren't enough hotels. And uh, you and I went to a conference and I remember a lot of the conference people with the large budget organizations were just staying in the hotel. And I was like, no, I'm going to 
Airbnb 15 minutes away. And even if I Uber every single time, it still makes sense for me to do this. What about the other concern that we always hear about this concern that Airbnb, because if you're having, if you're incentivizing second home ownership, you're constricting the supply of long-term housing. So that that's the key. We talk about short-term rental. What about long-term living? Um, does Airbnb constrict the housing supply and then increase rent in a city like Nashville? I think the most important thing to point out is the vast majority of Airbnb hosts are renting out their primary residence. This, uh, there are second homes, and that's what Nashville's ordinance specifically focuses on. But I just want to make sure that people understand that the vast majority of Airbnb homes are not second homes. But with second homes, I think they're an important part of the sharing economy, putting dead capital to use as well. Uh, the plaintiffs, when they sued Nashville over the ordinance, uh, was a family called the Andersons. And they were going to rent out their home because of a work opportunity. They were going to leave. I mean, in the music industry, this happens a lot. The husband had a chance to go off and he wanted to bring his family with him, but they didn't want to sell their home. They wanted to come back to it. But in order to afford this, they needed to rent it out on Airbnb while they were gone. So they challenged the city and they were able to win on the signage and on the cap, not the cap itself, but that it, the ordinance was written so sloppily, there was no way to tell if they were a bed and breakfast or an online short-term rental or what category they fit yeah, into. Yeah, I want to hone in on that a little bit because that's constantly a problem with these Airbnb laws. It's the way that they are defined and there is often confusion. So a bed and breakfast as we traditionally think of it, that's regulated more like a hotel, right? It depends on which city. Some cities have lack, more lax laws. Other ones will have certain parts of the hotels, like, you know, oh, let's say you need sprinkler system or something along those lines. So, and, and the law did not, of course, uh, define that. But this is kind of a Pyrrhic victory, right? Because we had the Beacon Center team up with the Andersons and they won, but they didn't really win, right? Because as you pointed out in an article for the American Spectator, which we will link to in the show notes for today, this kind of the judge opened the door to future like they're basically inviting the city council to go back to the drawing board and fix the law so that they can win right yeah it's just have someone who you know isn't an intern write the regulation next time <laughs> to make it clear what it's supposed to do and that's why i think it's important to point out the realities of what airbnb is doing for nashville it's helping to address the housing shortage and it's bringing more tourists tourism money into the city. I mean, studies have shown that Airbnb guests stay twice as long and spend twice as much money as those who stay at hotels. And again, as we talked about, they'll stay in neighborhoods that aren't filled with hotels. So spreading the tourism wealth around the city. I think this, what happened was this delay gives people a chance to realize and just put pressure on the city council to say, hey, you need to justify these regulations. You can't just throw out that 3% cap without backing up the numbers because now People just gobbled up those permits in certain neighborhoods. You can't get one anymore, no matter what your situation is. Now, does government have a legitimate interest in preventing, quote unquote, illegal hotels and illegal by definition of the government? Um, in an anarchist world, they wouldn't be illegal. But let's say that you've got real estate companies with big money. They see the boom in Nashville. They come in, they buy up an entire block and just rent them all the short term rentals. Doesn't that constrict the housing supply? Or are you saying it's not an illegitimate concern, it's just that it hasn't happened? Or, I mean, would you be comfortable with government trying to address that problem or what? I mean, I'm just trying to get to maybe a place where we can see that there's legitimate concerns and figure out what government should be doing because we can sit here and hope they do nothing but that doesn't seem to happen. <laughs> I think as long as you can build a home that fits residential permitting requirements and ordinances on the building codes when you're putting it up, if you want to rent it out short-term, long-term, if you want to live in it, 
the same regulation should apply because if a regulation is truly necessary to keep someone safe in a house, like let's say you know, fire sprinklers or an extra door or a wheel, uh, let's say an elevator, I don't know, pick anything. It should apply to all homes. I don't like when the government's coming in and saying, oh, well, we're going to categorize your home under this, this uh, bucket and therefore different regulations have to apply. And especially when it comes to renting, I don't see the difference between renting out for 29 days and 31 days because usually 30 days is the limit that defines short-term or long-term rentals. That seems kind of arbitrary. Now, I mean, getting to the legitimate concern here, instead of just trying to blame Airbnb or try to manipulate short-term re- rental regulations as a way of solving legitimate problems, if we decide that Nashville is booming and there's not enough housing, and what can cities do to address problems of cost of living without blaming online platforms? Because a lot of cities like New York and San Francisco, it's not like cost of living was not a problem before Airbnb showed up, but it's important, I guess, for people like you and me who like who, who want the sharing economy to succeed and they want it to remain largely unfettered. We need to address the underlying problems that are motivating people, like affordable housing. So are there things Nashville could be doing to address that problem without scapegoating the online platform? Well, I find it hard to feel bad for people in Nashville because you can get a pretty nice apartment there for about $600 a month, which is something you can't do in D.C. or New York, (laughs) the last two places I've lived. So I have a hard time feeling bad for them. But let's say we do want to continue to expand the housing supply, uh, which Nashville is doing. A lot of uh, its suburbs are growing as well. Uh, People are building there. It's not like, let's say, San Francisco or L.A., where there are legitimate problems where they just practically have built nothing. Yeah, you can't build in the exurbs, so the city is just keep getting more expensive. Yeah. And in San Francisco, you really can't build at all. So and yeah. there's other places where I would say the, obviously we all know high rents didn't just start in 2008 when Airbnb began, uh, especially in cities like New York and San Francisco. So when right. politicians are blaming these companies for the rental crisis, I think that's kind of blaming the new guy in town. But there's a lot of cities like Nashville, I would say they don't have a housing crisis by any means there people want to move there so prices are going to go up till we can build more it takes a while to build new housing stock uh, but it's not in the terms of a san francisco level crisis so in terms of what might actually happen uh in nashville we've got a court case but like i said the judge opened the door for the city to go back knowing cities that really hate airbnb i would imagine they're going to take another bite at the apple what about state law um we've talked about this dynamic on the show before where cities Often, uh, maybe they overstep and states come in and pass a blanket law that regulates Airbnb for the whole state. Is that going to happen in Tennessee? I think it's going to happen. Uh, Tennessee, they're a very conservative legislature, and I think they're trying to rein in what they see as blue cities cutting off innovation. Uh, So there's a bill right now that's moving through, and I would expect, I, I wouldn't say it's going to for sure pass, but I would think this has a very good chance at passing just because Nashville has made it very clear that they're attempting to just flat out ban non-owner occupied rentals. Uh, but they're trying to go even further than they did in the original ordinance. And it looks like the state is borrowing its approach from Memphis, which has also kind of borrowed its approach from Arizona, which we've talked about as a model for state preemption before. But there's going to be some pushback here, especially with Republicans in charge of so many states and the federal government. Cities run by Democrats are going to want to assert themselves in any way they possibly can. And there is an argument to be made for, you know, the role of cities and, you know, they are close to the people and they can address local concerns. Recently, the Colorado Municipal League had a report 
that argue that there is no one-size-fits-all answer for municipalities in regulating short-term rentals. So should we be allowing states to come in and just say what all the regulations are when cities, they feel like they have a role and responsibility? I mean, how do you square that that equation? How do you allow a city to do some things but also allow the state? I mean, this is going to be a battle between governments for supremacy over their jurisdictions. Yeah, and this battle is only going to continue to grow. Arizona is the only state in the country that has a true statewide preemption. Florida has one they passed, I think, about uh, eight years ago, but it's really ineffective. So they're trying to pass a new one now. But there's only one state that has a statewide regulatory framework uh, for short-term rentals. When it comes to ride-sharing, on the other hand, like Uber, Lyft, there's 37 states with a framework. So I think over the next two, three years, you're going to see more and more states follow the Arizona model where they tell cities, you know what, you can regulate short-term rentals, but what you can't do is discriminate against short-term rentals by treating them differently than long-term rentals and other residential properties. Yeah, and clearly giving giving a uh, handout to the hotels by just insulating them from competition. What are those handful of things that you see as appropriate for a local government to regulate in regards to Airbnb uh, as opposed to those that the state should be handling? Well, I think one thing, if, uh, for example, we've seen in Colorado, certain cities have restrictions on how many unrelated people can stay together during a short-term rental. If that's going to be a restriction, I think that should also have to apply to all houses in general. It's kind of using homeowners, a lot of which are well-meaning, who just end up kind of with nimbyism concerns, the not-in-my-backyard idea, saying they don't want short-term rentals around them. They might support Airbnb in theory and might use it when they travel, but they don't want that in their neighborhood or their apartment building. So I think the best way to counter this built-in special interest, which is homeowners, people living there right now, is to make any restriction also have to apply to them. As I said, in that case, if there's legitimate health and safety concerns, like maybe we decide in... I don't know, Arizona is some city that's very dry and there's lots of fire concerns. Or, or you so got to somehow have escape. an anti-scorpion defense system yeah. in your house. So if you require that of a short-term rental property, your solution to this discriminatory problem would just be apply rules across the board. And that way, if rules are something that a homeowner wouldn't want imposed on themselves, they're not going to impose it on the other houses there. Now, and of course, Colorado may have been right when it, this was the municipal league report you were talking about when they said there wasn't a one-size-fits-all solution. I don't know what's going to work for every community. But I just, again, think that that's the best way to just stop the built-in special interest from coming out against this new technology. So I want to do a lightning round of Colorado regulation because we are running up against the nice 20 minutes that we generally are able to accomplish between me and you because you don't talk as much as some of my lawyer guests. But um, of course, uh, Colorado has a patchwork of cities that approach Airbnb differently uh, what is it? We've got like Denver, Boulder, Durango, and Breckenridge. If you could kind of go through a lightning round here and just say what is the most interesting or controversial aspect of those four cities' approach to Airbnb. So like what Nashville is trying to do, Denver doesn't allow people to rent out their second homes. As we talked about, there there are a lot of cases like the Andersons, the people who challenged the Nashville ordinance, that it makes sense. Uh, and we don't want these homes to be sitting empty, especially in places like Colorado, where a lot of people, these are vacation homes we're going yeah, to be talking about. It's just a waste, about. essentially. I mean, they still own it, right? So you're just basically saying they can't rent it. They're still going to own it, and no one's going to be living there long term. So that's just a waste. Yeah, yeah. And Boulder has pretty much uh, similar regulations to Denver, and they have a lot of different uh, 
charges that they'll put in like extra things for trash or different regulations for uh, other parts of short-term rentals but they also uh, cap uh, rentals for these alternative dwelling units think like if you've got a casita like a little granny pod in your backyard or a garage <laughs> apartment or something like that they decide to cap that at 120 days a year it's just showing there's every city has different things uh but colorado though those are pretty much good by colorado standards because we have crazy things going on right now we're like telluride they limit short-term rentals to residential in residential zones they say that there can only be three occurrences of renting a year that's all you can do so if you're out of town you know during the weekends and you want to rent out your apartment you can only do that three times a year that seems arbitrary uh one that i find interesting uh, just to jump in on your lightning round is durango because there is this concern about like neighborhood character and we see that go it's it's up against Real estate, right? Because if you if you just allow unfettered real estate development, you could see that cities that have kind of an architectural identity or like a charm to them, that they would be homogenized, right? That just whatever the newest, cheapest raw materials for building, that's what shit will look like. I mean, frankly, pardon my French, but governments might feel they have a legitimate role in protecting the character of a city. And that gets into the whole gentrification debate, which we will leave for another podcast. But what is Durango trying to do in terms of allowing airbnb to exist but but they're trying to address this concern of their uniqueness <laughs> <laughs> well these policymakers they they called uh, what they came up with in durango an innovative solution because they said that depending on which block face you're on it's going to limit the number of uh, short-term rental permits that can be on that block and in total they're only allowing 60 permits for the entire city so 60 homes can have the potential to rent out for short-term rentals. I think this is something that, again, if you don't get in and get this permit early enough, what are you going to be able to do? And I understand the concerns about neighborhoods. And of course, there are private solutions we have to this, like putting in, if you're renting, what's in your uh, rental contract, or also just homeowners associations coming together and saying, we don't want this in our neighborhood. Yeah, best practices. I don't, yeah. I don't agree with keeping out short-term rentals. If I was living somewhere, I would want it because it would increase the value of my home because I'd be able to use it for another income stream. Uh, but if that's what they decide to do, I think this is better left to things like homeowners associations, or if it just comes to building in general, there's other ways to limit development in true, let's say a historical area. This is kind of why Arizona had to pass their bill because of a lot of smaller mountain towns, similar to the vacation areas in Colorado, they just didn't want anyone else to come in. It's almost like all those Americans who moved to Hawaii and then don't want anyone else to move to Hawaii because they think they're ruining the character of the state. <laughs> it's this whole idea of, well, I got here to Durango first. Now, you know, I want to keep it exactly like it was when I arrived. I don't want it to grow. I don't want it to develop. I don't want the locals to have any more work opportunities. It's kind of an interesting, again, this not in my new backyard idea that's going on. And that's why I think Colorado should also consider some sort of legislation to at least make more base. It doesn't have to go as far as Arizona. It's like Arizona is close to what I think is the ideal legislation, but uh, just do something so that these cities aren't running and doing entirely different regulations every time you move to a different town. So last question, um, I'm curious about registration requirements because it seems kind of like a benign thing, right? Okay. We'll allow Airbnb at, in a various city or state, but we are going to require that you, you know, just go down to one of the government offices and say, hey, I'm a rental property. You know, you, you might be able to think of some legitimate government purposes in that, you know, maybe for nuisance laws, they can narrow down their focus, whatever. But have you seen that registration is a is a real impediment to people using platforms and that 
depending on the way it's done, people just give up. You know, maybe they were doing a couple weekends. Airbnb wasn't a huge deal in their life. So when they see some cumbersome reg- registration regime, they just say, screw it. Is that a pattern that you've noticed across the country? Well, I think you can see with any sort of this online platform economy, every single barrier you put up to entry decreases participation because a lot of it's part time or just for supplemental income. But a normal uh, an argument for registration, let's say paying a $25 fee and going and just registering your property as a short term rental. That's something I don't see any reason to fight back against. But the danger is a lot of cities, when they say registration, what they mean then is you're signing away pretty much your property rights, like what was going on in Chicago, which I know the Goldwater Institute's been challenging, where you're signing away, uh, you're saying that anytime the city can come in and inspect your short-term rental then for no reason whatsoever other than that you registered it. So I think registration in theory, there's no problem with that, uh, especially as long as it's just something to defray the government costs, not you know charging $10,000 to get a registration right. or a permit. But when it comes with all these other strings attached and that you're signing away your property rights, I think that's where we're seeing big problems. Well, we'll link to your uh, op-ed about the Nashville situation. And depending on when your Colorado article comes out, we can add that to the show notes as well. My guest has been Jared Meyer, Senior Research Fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability. Jared, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Evan. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at media at techfreedom.org. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review. It will help others find the show. If you like this podcast as much as you hate opening your wallet, you can help us out for free. Go to givewithdata.com, answer a couple questions, and Give With Data will send us $5 as a charitable donation on your behalf. See you next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.